0: Welcome to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 27, A Walk in the Desert. Having returned from archaeological work in the Sudan, I am now back into writing and producing new episodes, and hope to produce a solid new episode every two weeks or so. With my master's thesis out of the way, this should be an easier prospect, and I'm confident I will produce new content in a far more regular pattern than has been the case presently. With that out of the way, let's return to the story of Egypt, with a brief overlook of First Intermediate Period art, and then a more substantial discussion of Montuhotep II's great monumental construction at Thebes. The First Intermediate Period has ended. Or, more accurately, it is now coming to its final stages. The House of Intef stands victorious over a united Egypt, with their rivals, the House of Keti, a mere shadow in the sands of the Nile Valley. Looking back on this time, a period of some 200 years, which we have covered in just three episodes, it goes without saying that a lot of detail has been missed. This is partly the limitations of history podcasting, but also partly the nature of the period itself. The lack of a strong central authority means that monuments and inscriptions and written papyrus archives are in very short supply. But the first intermediate period was also a time of wonderful artistic expression, fittingly The collapse of a single monarchical power gave rise to local voices in carving and decoration. While the style of art didn't change in its most basic features, the manner in which figures were represented did change to some degree. For instance, men were shown as more fleshy or chubby in some cases, and women as slightly elongated and slimmed. The eyes are particularly interesting, often wide and bright, almost similar to a cartoon character. I have provided some images from this period on the website, egyptianhistory.libsyn.com, and I hope you'll agree when I say that they show a wonderful sense of liveliness, of character, and individuality. Early Egyptologists, who were educated and obsessed with the classical Greek forms, dismissed such works as a decline in quality from the greatest art of the old kingdom. Compared with the beautiful granite statues of Carfre, or the carved images of Pepi I, they felt that the first intermediate period artists were inferior at some fundamental level. Perhaps to some degree that is true. After all, the resources were not available to pay for such works, As the old kingdom kings had been able to afford. But to dismiss these later art pieces is, in my opinion, a serious mistake. Indeed, to dismiss the first intermediate period itself is an almost pathological error in the study of Egyptian history. This period had uncountable influences on the society of Egypt, ones which will continue to feature in the episodes ahead. So although I've covered the political history in just three episodes, ahead of us there will be frequent callbacks to the first intermediate period. I hope, over time, that you will come to see just how powerful an influence this era, and the memory of this era, played in the development of Egyptian culture. In the year 2040 BCE, or thereabouts, the warlord king Montuhotep II reached Memphis, the ancient capital of the Old Kingdom. Entering in victory, he can now be considered the first king of Upper and Lower Egypt to claim genuine and effective power over the Nile Valley and Delta in nearly 200 years. In celebration of his victory, Montuhotep took the rare decision to alter his royal titles. This occurred in three distinct stages, as the king altered one section of his titulary, and then another. Finally, he settled on the Horus name of Sematawi, or He Who Unites the Two Lands. The name was an august one, casting Montuhotep as a new námer, the legendary ruler of the pre-dynastic period that had successfully forged the unified kingdom of Egypt. But names and titles do not make the king, and Montuhotep could easily have been forgotten quickly, had his rule been merely a stepping stone on the path to true reunification. Egyptian royal prestige rested on more than the control of the Nile Valley's largest communities, a king needed to proclaim his right to the throne. And there was really only one truly effective way of doing this. Montuhotep needed a monument. For those of you who have been with us since the beginning, you'll know now how important the construction of monuments was for royal prestige. Great monuments appeared in the early dynastic period, and came to form a prominent part of the king's public legacy. The great pyramids of Giza surpassed any monument before or since, but every ruler worth his salt constructed great pyramids and temples to preserve his memory. Even the ephemeral kings of dynasties 7 and 8 had tried to build small pyramids in order to ensure that their legacy was preserved. For the new Theban regime to establish its legitimacy, great public works were needed. Montuhotep had already begun a small funerary monument at Thebes, prior to his victory in the north. With the defeat of Meri and the House of Keti, however, this project was expanded greatly. One of the first parts of the project was begun before the temple itself, was even under major construction. A large grave was prepared for the burial of 60 warriors at Deir al-Bahari on the west bank of Thebes. These bodies were not mummified, but despite this, the proper burial and the dry conditions of the region have left a beautiful record of these individuals. We can see their faces, their skin and their hair, despite the complete lack of embalming or preparation, these bodies still look as though they could be sleeping. The burial of these men, who were soldiers, is commonly connected with the last years of the First Intermediate Period. In fact, I referenced them briefly in episode 26, as part of the last phases to Montuhotep's campaign in the north. It is possible that these soldiers were particularly heroic warriors killed in the campaign. They may have defeated foes in single combat, or led particularly audacious sorties against the enemy. It's unclear exactly what they did to earn such an honour, but it is certain that Montuhotep esteemed these warriors for their service, and rewarded them with a place in the sacred precinct of his burial monument. The temple itself is now largely destroyed, but enough has survived for archaeologists to make some tentative reconstructions of its original form. To describe it, let's do something different, and try an imaginative exercise. Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and imagine yourself crossing the Nile on a small wooden boat, approaching the western bank of Thebes. The riverbank is covered in reeds, from which all kinds of birds fly out in search of food. Acacia trees stand in small, scattered clumps, providing some much needed shade for the farmers working at their fields. As you disembark from your boat, you are now walking westward, along dirt paths through the palm trees which line the roadways between farms. are date palms, which grow in abundance at places where the land dips close enough to the water level. The shade is cool, and the breeze from the Nile is refreshing. But soon the ground begins to grow increasingly sandy, and you are emerging from the shadows to the scorching sun of the midday desert. Fields and trees fall away, replaced by scrub and prickly bushes and sand. In the months of the inundation, this region will cover in water, but at the height of summer, it is now a dry region, devoid of moisture. You continue walking, your sandals shuffling in the sandy soil. Your linen clothing is airy, but begins to stick to you with the heat. Still, you keep walking. An hour passes as you walk through the desert, following the dirt tracks which lead you towards the cliffs. You cannot yet see the valley of Deir al-Bahari, and instead must follow the trackways created by generations of donkeys and farmers moving along the edge of the fertile plain. Another hour is nearly past, and the cliffs now loom large overhead as you move into their sacred confines. Dust is in the air, and the rock faces echo faintly with the sound of chisels and hammers. Shouting can be heard, occasionally filtering down the canyon. Rounding a corner, you come to Deir el-Bahari, and the mortuary temple of Montuhotep II. A massive square podium rises out of the sand, covered in acacia scaffolding, and the small shadows of men hurrying to and fro, carving, hauling stones, and working at the myriad tasks of construction. The podium is built of carved limestone, sourced from the local area. A long causeway rises up to the top of the podium, allowing the movement of construction materials, and, one day, the king's mummified body. The podium itself is raised against the slope of the cliffs, to protect the tomb against the Nile waters. See, when the inundation occurs and the Nile floods its banks, the high waters reach even as far as this secluded valley. Taking advantage of this, workers now plant orchards to either side of the causeway, which will be fed by the flood waters and sustained by manual labour throughout the year. As you ascend the causeway to the top of the podium, You are greeted by a walled courtyard. Entering into this space, fortunately you have high-level clearance into the site, you find yourself greeted by a large court ringed with columns. The walls of this courtyard are decorated with scenes of hunting, ceremonial processions, and foreign campaigns. The king prizes himself as a warrior, and ensures that his wars are recorded as a celebration of martial vigor and power. The columned courtyard is fascinating, but its center is dominated by a unique feature. A large masonry structure rises in a sort of artificial mound, rounded at the top, like the ancient mound of earth which emerged from the waters of creation long, long ago. The structure is sometimes thought to have been a pyramid, based on a later text, which refers to this building, with the symbol of a pyramid used as a determinative. Now, it seems more likely that the pyramid symbol was used to refer to a tomb in general, based on the fact that the most noteworthy old kingdom tombs were the royal pyramids. But for you, the ancient wanderer viewing the monument, this is of no consequence. As you wander past the primeval mound, you enter into a second courtyard. Here, six shafts are being dug by the workmen. The shafts, which descend deep into the bedrock, will be used as the burial chambers for the king's family members, including the princesses Tem and Asha'it. Let's take a moment to talk about them. is a priestess of Hathor, beloved of the king, royal wife, and royal ornament. She will die at the age of 22, leaving behind a mummy that survives into the modern day, being kept in the Cairo Museum. Asha'i's beautiful limestone sarcophagus shows granaries being filled by workers, reminding the viewer of the increased prosperity of the kingdom after the climate disruptions of Dynasties 7 and 8. Her coffin is lovely, but Ashite is not the primary wife of the king. Nor is Tem, the other notable princess, buried in this temple. Tem bears the great honour of giving birth to Prince Montuhotep III, who will one day succeed his father as king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Granted the titles of Mother of the King and Great One of the Sceptre, Tem is indeed one of the most revered women in the kingdom. But these two women are but consort queens, not the principal wife of Montuhotep. That honour goes to a woman named Neferu, who bears more titles than any other royal woman of the period. She is the lady of the royal house, the hereditary princess, and the one who sees Horus and Seth. Neferu's titles place her at the centre of divine cults, and the royal household, a strong centralization of power and religious authority. She is the queen of Egypt. But she may only be the wife of the king in symbolic terms. Neferu is the sister of Montuhotep, daughter of his father Entef III. Together, they are sibling consorts. And yet, they do not seem to have had any children together, apart from Montuhotep III, son of Tim, We do not know of any other children from Montuhotep. This suggests that the king bore his children through women other than his sister. Of course, this is 100% our own cultural attitude driving the interpretation we are averse to notions of genuine incest, and often try to make a distinction between the queens of Egypt and those who were actually the lovers and mothers of the kings. Nevertheless, the balance of evidence suggests that Montuhotep has married his sister as a way of preserving royal legitimacy, while using lesser wives to produce his heirs and children. As you turn away from the tomb shafts of these royal women, and advance further into the temple, you are now approaching the entrance to the king's tomb. Dug deep into the bedrock, Montuhotep II's tomb is a secluded chamber for preservation lined in red granite. In small niches along the passageway, models of granaries, ships, and bakeries were placed I will discuss these in a later episode. Suffice to say that Montuhotep's reign reveals a lot of art concerned with agriculture, suggesting an economic resurgence, and a particular focus on such matters in royal artistic production. But that is a story for later. As you leave the small burial chamber of the king and return to the surface, you turn towards the west and head into the holy sanctuary of the temple. This is the heart of the structure, the place from which the king's cult is preserved, and his power ensured. Here the king is worshipped, along with a particularly Theban version of the great god Ray. This deity will come to be an enormous influence in Egyptian theology, and cannot be summarized in the remainder of this episode. Suffice to say, At the heart of the temple, in the inner sanctum of Deir el bahari in the reign of Montuhotep II, you are standing face to face with one of the primeval creators, a king of the gods, the hidden one, Amun-Ra. If you feel like that was a cliffhanger, and that our discussion of the Deir al-Bahari temple is not finished, you are correct. Next time, we will leave the temple of Deir al-Bahari, and visit some of its primary sites on the way out. Then, we will join with Montuhotep II, as he leads a massive campaign into Nubia, to reassert Egyptian dominance of this land, and claim his legacy as the king of Upper and Lower Egypt.